I want to say thank you to the worship team for leading us in worship. And David, thanks for what you shared, your love for Jesus and your compassion and desire to show people the love of Jesus is, I think, contagious. So thank you. Uh, my name's Andrew, and I want to invite us now to transition to gathering around Jesus through the ministry of the Word. So if you have a Bible, I, I do invite you to open a Bible. We're going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And uh, again, a special welcome to you if you're new to church this morning and, and you don't really know a lot of what we're doing or you don't know how to use a Bible, feel free to grab a pew Bible. It's a blue pew Bible and you can open to page 836 and you can follow along with us. We would love if you could do that. So what we're going to do is read this passage and then go from there. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word to us this morning. Why don't we pray? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon us for without your spirit, we cannot understand the words we've just read. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would cause these words to land in our hearts and in our minds as never before, and that you would bring about change in us and cause us to live in the realities that we see here, the realities of the kingdom of your Son. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. As we start this morning... I want you to think about some unbreakable rule that you have. Maybe it's a rule about your household or maybe vis-a-vis -vis your car, whatever. Some unbreakable rule. You know, I've been in houses where it's like, you know, there's no feet on the kitchen table. Uh, maybe uh, you don't like it when people go on your lawn, right? So it's like your lawn, off limits. Uh, I've also been in a house where 
uh, you walk into the living room and there's a clear plastic sofa cover on, on the sofa. And, and so the, 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 the rule there is like, you can't actually sit on the sofa. You just kind of get this uncomfortable, crinkling plastic under you and an unbreakable rule. Personally, my household adheres to the rule of you, you don't wear shoes inside the house, right? Yeah, I'm seeing some nods, all right. I've, I've always held this rule to be just a good rule to follow. Um, when my wife and I were, were starting to, to date a long time ago and see each other, uh, I, I liked her. I, I liked her a lot, but there was one part of her that I, I didn't quite know of yet, and that was that she had American relatives. And so what I quickly learned in our marriage is that the, the whole taking off your shoes inside is not really an American thing. Um, and so uh, it, it was rather uh, offensive, I, I might say, uh, when we would have American family over and, you know, you open the door and they just come right in. Uh, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about the shoes. Uh, yeah, just come right in. Walk on the carpet that I just vacuumed. Okay. It's good to get that off my chest. We all have these rules. And we can understand what it's like to be offended when the rule gets broken. And we it can understand wanting to enforce the rules. And, and maybe we can understand a little bit of what these people called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were wanting to do in the text we just read. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come onto the scene recently in Luke. Um, they've, uh, they are, were these serious religious people who were responsible with teaching the Hebrew Bible and they were passionate about keeping Torah, that is keeping the law of God and making sure everyone else was keeping it as well. They were the religious watchdogs of their day. And so recently in Luke, they've come uh, from Judea and Jerusalem and they've made the 125 kilometer trip up into the back country of Galilee. This was not a vacation, this was a mission for them to go and check out this Jesus guy. This guy who's making waves up in the north. What is he teaching? Is it kosher? And the first strike against Jesus comes when he forgives the sins of a paralytic man. You'll remember the scene from a few Sundays ago. These Bible teachers and theologians are all gathered in this house with other people and they heard Jesus say these words to a man. They heard him say, your sins are forgiven. And the alarm bells started like going berserk. They ask, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Dun, dun, dun. Jesus, maybe. And then they take issue with Jesus that he's associating with the wrong people. He, he's having dinner with tax collectors and sinners after he calls Matthew to follow him. And they took issue with his piety, uh, the issue around fasting. So, so all the other disciples and kind of religious groups, they were fasting, but Jesus' disciples were not. So these leaders come up to him and go, man, Jesus, you're too lax. 
Everyone else is fasting. Why aren't you fasting? And today there's more opposition coming to Jesus from this group. And it's about the Sabbath. And some of us, if we're from a church background, we, can re- we know kind of what the Sabbath is, right? Some of us grew up with maybe a very rigid notion of the Sabbath. Did you know that in Canada, you couldn't do a business transaction on a Sunday until 1985? It's called the Lord's Day Act. Anyone remember that? Yeah. The times, they are a-changing. But for some of us, Sabbath has more been like this optional nice idea that if you can do it, that's great. And for others of us who are here, we have no clue what the Sabbath entails. Well, for Jews, the Sabbath was and is a huge deal, okay? Uh, Did you know that Sabbath observance is part of the Ten Commandments? Anyone heard of the Ten Commandments? The Old Testament? Okay, Sabbath observance is in there. And I'm just curious, does anyone know what number out of 10 Sabbath comes? Anyone want to venture a guess? Is it seven? It's four. It comes before murder. It comes before adultery. Like, do not, it's like, observe, remember the Sabbath, then don't murder, then don't commit adultery. It was a huge deal in God's law. The Sabbath was sacred. You could not touch it. It was this fundamental piece of Jewish identity. And so Jesus is going through a grain field in the first controversy we see. He's going through a grain field on the Sabbath and his disciples start to pick some of the grain and and I've never done this, but I imagine when you pick grain, you've got to like rub it in your hands to separate the kernel from the husk uh, and then you can eat it, right? So, So they're doing that. And uh, the Pharisees see this and, and they blow the whistle because they see the disciples doing work. Now, if you look in Exodus 20.10, this is the, the part of the Ten Commandments that begins, uh, that, that's talking about the Sabbath. It says the Sabbath day or the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Okay, so the Sabbath is somehow about not doing any work. Well, the question would then become, what constitutes work, right? If, if I have to clean up the dishes on a sun, on, on, in the afternoon, is that work? Like, what constitutes work? How far can I walk on the Sabbath? And all of these questions were real questions for early Judaism. And so in order to flesh out the Sabbath regulations, they made a kind of handbook It was a handbook to the Torah. It was called the Mishnah. And this book detailed kind of all these rules about what needed to be followed in order to follow the law of God, right? And this was convenient for religious leaders because then you could quantify people's observance. You could enforce the Sabbath. And so, as they see the disciples uh, eating the grain, Their alarm bells go off. Out of the 39 things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, they were doing four of them, all in that small little action of snacking on some kernels. They were reaping. They were threshing the wheat. They were winnowing the wheat. They were preparing food on the Sabbath. Gasp. You cannot do that. 
So as we're hearing this story, just pause and consider. This is kind of a funny story, isn't it? Because as a reader, you're wondering, okay, so here's Jesus with his disciples in a grain field. What are the Pharisees doing there? Right? And I have this funny picture of like the Pharisees, they've got like uh, sheaves of wheat like tied to them and they're like camouflaged, hiding in the field, ready to jump out and say, ha, Jesus, we've got you. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but in any case, these serious religious people just happen to be there at the same time in the same place. And they blow the whistle. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus replies, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions we're on the run from Saul. So, so he's referencing a, an Old Testament story about Israel's most famous king, King David. And, and, and David wasn't king yet because there was another king named Saul. And he was kind of this unstable, violent man. And he had learned that, well, David was going to be the next king. And how does that usually go uh, in terms of the power struggle? N- not well. And so David had to go into hiding. He's living in the bush with his companions in this life or death situation and he comes to the house of God and takes the consecrated bread that only priests were allowed to eat and they eat it. Life or death situation. So we might be wondering, why does Jesus answer the Pharisees with this story? Is it because he and his disciples are in a similar situation? Are they in this life or death, I need food or I'm gonna die situation? Doesn't really look that way, does it? I mean, when you just, the plain reading of the text, sometimes it's just the best one, right? When you read it, you think, oh, they're on a Saturday stroll, right? And, 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 oh, a wonderful opportunity, grain, yes. I'm feeling a bit peckish, I'll help myself. They're not eating to to fill themselves. It's, It's bird food, right? It's grain. The point of the story isn't that the disciples deserve an exception because of great need. Here's the point of the story. The point of the story is the comparison between Jesus and David, okay? It's not, it's not a story that somehow provides an exception for the circumstances. It's, it's a story that is making a statement about Jesus' identity, right? Luke is painting a portrait of Jesus. And with every story, he's adding strokes and color that are adding depth and clarity to what we're seeing of Jesus. The point here is his identity. Jesus is this David-like figure. And somehow the presence of Jesus requires an adjustment in our conception and application of the law. I mean, Jesus drives this home in verse five. Check out verse five. He says, so the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And right here we would just hear the hammer drop, right? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's going beyond David now. 
He calls himself the Son of Man. That's his favorite nickname. And it was referencing uh, this vision that, that comes in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, uh, which was a very iconic vision. Sorry. And uh, in this vision, Daniel sees the thrones set up in the heavens in the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. And then in 7.13, it says this. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. And then he, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is so brilliant. In calling himself the Son of Man, he's recalling this iconic vision, and people who hear it are like, are you him? Are you the Son of Man? Whoa. And then he says, the Son of Man is Lord. Now, Lord was a weighty word as well. Lord means he's master. Lord means he's over whatever it is he's talking about. And Lord was an allusion to the Old Testament name for God, right? So in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you see Lord in all capital letters. That's the illusion. That, that, and then somehow, in, in dropping the hammer with this statement of his authority, the, the Pharisees, we don't see their reaction, but they're just left, probably stunned, And they need to decide, is this Jesus really who he says he is, right? And it's clear what he's doing in this first Sabbath controversy, that he's appealing to his authority as the Son of Man and as the Lord of the Sabbath, that somehow the presence of Jesus changes the way we see the rules and the way the rules are followed because he's the master of them. And he is actually fulfilling what the rules are meant to bring about. So think about the illustration of that rule, no shoes in the house. I want you to think about like the most important human being to you on planet Earth right now. Who is the most important human being? I'm not talking about your family, I'm talking about like a celebrity, a figure of authority, right? Like, Right now, Kawhi Leonard is a big city, or a big deal in the city because the Raptors are in the playoffs. That's great. But think of someone, okay? You got them in your, in your mind? Now, if they come to your house and you have this rule about no shoes on in your house, and for me, if, if Kawhi Leonard comes up to my door and says, hey, man, I want to hang out, and he walks in with his shoes on, what, am I going to enforce? And I say, whoa, 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 Kawhi. You gotta take those big honkers off. Uh, those are not allowed in here. Absolutely not. There's no way. The presence of this person is gonna change how I think about that rule. And, and by the way, that rule, what's that rule about? I want my house to be presentable. I want it to be respectable, right? But how much more respect am I given with the visit of this important person, right? That's like what's going on with Jesus. That the presence of Jesus and who he is 
makes enforcing those little rules pretty trivial. Because the Sabbath wasn't about not doing work. The Sabbath was about a day of rest in order to be and rest in the presence of God and to enjoy his presence. And so here, in a sense, we have God before them. They are in the presence of God, right? When Jesus visits us, we are in the presence of the living God. And so why would we nitpick about the rules? That's what's happening in this first Sabbath controversy. Now, let's turn to the second one. It says in verse 6, on another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching, right? So, so here we see Jesus honoring Sabbath practices, right? He's doing what a good Jewish person of his standing, a teacher would do. He goes to church and he starts teaching the Bible. And there's a man there and he has a need, right? His hand is shriveled. And the watchdogs are there too, right? But the Pharisees are there. And they're looking for a reason, it says, to accuse him. Watching him closely. And Jesus knows it. He's aware of it. Can you feel the tension in the story? Can you, can you sense this storm brewing? And then Jesus tells the man with the shriveled hand, the poor guy, get up and stand in front of everyone. He's caught in the middle. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with a question. He says, I ask you, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy life? In other words, guys, what's the Sabbath really about anyways? Is it about the restoration of life? Or is it about the dismantling of life? That, that's the angle of this story where we see this tension between rule following and responding to human need. What does Jesus put first? He puts the human need first. For him, if it's a choice between doing good and sticking to the rules, he's gonna do good. That's the angle of what's going on here. Uh, Jesus' goodness is at play here, redefining and even, in a sense, rescuing the Sabbath from what the Pharisees are trying to make of it. So think back to, you know, your house and you have this rule of no shoes. When my grandparents come over, right, they're in their 80s. Um, my grandma has to use a cane. She has hip issues. My grandfather uses a walker. When they come over and I see their need, do I tell my grandparents they have to take their shoes off? Unthinkable. I would never. That's what's going on here. It's, it's we're applying goodness and responding to human need in a way that's appropriate. That's what Jesus is doing. He has authority as the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath to fulfill the Sabbath, and he uses that authority in the pursuit of our good. 
He uses that authority in the pursuit of mercy and compassion. Look how the Pharisees respond in verse 11. It says, But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They end with fury, and, and fury is, is, is an okay word, but the sense of the wording here is even stronger. The sense is that the Pharisees are losing their minds. They, 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 they're not just angry, they are losing their minds. Why are they losing their minds? Jesus has just healed a man, and they're losing their minds? See, they can't see the bigger picture of God's will for the Sabbath as a day for the restoration of human life. Even though Jesus is fulfilling that purpose right in front of them, they can't see it. They're so entrenched in their ways. And when you take this story in the context of of how Jesus has just said that he's bringing new wine and that old wineskins can't hold the new wine because if you put new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins, uh, new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins will burst. What's happening here is Luke is showing us that as Jesus is bringing the new wine of the gospel and of his personal presence, in the Pharisees, we're starting to see the wineskins start to break, right? They're starting to bulge, they're starting to crack, They're trying to fit Jesus in and Jesus can't be fit into their old ways of doing things. And so when you take these two Sabbath controversies together, they form a stunning picture. The first one emphasizes his authority, that he is the Davidic Messiah, Messiah, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. And the second one emphasizes his goodness, in exercising his authority. Now I want us to think about how this story relates to our own life. And first I wanna touch on the Sabbath because my guess is that some of us are here this morning and as the Sabbath question comes up, you're wondering, okay, pastor, when are you gonna get to the point where you tell me whether I should follow the Sabbath or not, right? Do I need to observe a Sabbath? And in response to that question, uh, I want us to first pause and see how Jesus is rescuing the Sabbath from its perversion at the hands of the religious leaders. They are using the Sabbath as this chain, right? They are using it as a burden. Jesus is rescuing it from them and giving it back to us as a gift. Right? He's giving it back to us as a gift, as this special time of rest and delight in God and in one another, a time for health to be restored in rest and in worship. It's a time to know that God is God and that I'm not. That's what Sabbath is about. And so if your question is still, do I have to follow the Sabbath? I want to respectfully encourage you to consider that you might be missing the point in asking that question. Because if you're seeing the Sabbath as a burden, 
right? Something that comes as an inconvenience that limits your freedom, then you're not seeing the Sabbath as gift, as Jesus is giving it back to us as this life-restoring time. It's not a burden or a chain. So if you're in that position, I want to read to you what New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says about his own study of this matter. Um, Because I think it's really helpful. He says this, I've been convinced that Jesus still wants the observance of a day of rest under the lordship of the Son of Man's love command. In short, he wants a non-legalistic yet real day of rest. And here's why. He says, few realities so lovingly protect human beings from mass exploitation as a day of rest. The Sabbath command as protected by Jesus saves human beings from the objectification of work workolatry and burnout. It enables humans to be human beings rather than human doings. Isn't that profound? So in our text, Jesus is rescuing the Sabbath from legalism and giving it back to us as a gift. And maybe seeing this and hearing these thoughts might help you consider if you could adopt some kind of Sabbath for yourself. And I just want to say that our Sabbath observance in the new covenant is totally covered in grace, okay? So does a Sabbath feel restful? I'm I'm speaking for myself. Does a Sabbath feel restful when I'm spending it with three kids under five? No, absolutely not. A Sabbath doesn't mean that I enter into 24 hours of responsibility-free euphoria, right? It's not that, uh, no, not changing any diapers, not doing any dishes, not picking you up. No, my wife would have none of it. Sabbath means that I'm taking time, in my case with my family, to focus on the most important thing. And and that's relationship with God and relationship with one another. So maybe you could consider adopting that for yourself as well. The second direction I want to go in terms of application is the way we think about the Christian faith. Is the Christian faith about relationship or rule-keeping? Is it about relationship or rule-keeping? Often when the Pharisees are put before us in the New Testament, there's something that's really easy to do. And it's to just go, oh, those Pharisees, they're so thick-headed, they're so silly, they never get it. I'm so glad I'm not like them right? But if we do that, we're actually going to miss part of what this text wants to challenge us with. Because the Pharisees aren't there for us to condemn them. The Pharisees are there for us to consider whether their ways were like them, right? Are there ways that I've grown rigid or ways that I've replaced relationship with rule-keeping and made this, that, that whatever rules the center rather than the relationship as the center. I, I mean, and you might think, oh, this would be impossible. You know, we're in the time 
Uh, Jesus has died and risen again, and he's given us his spirit. How could we ever do this? Well, it happened in the New Testament. Paul had to confront the church of Galatia in his letter to them because they had fallen into adding Torah observance to the gospel as the basis of their righteousness and relationship with God. And listen to what Paul says to them in Galatians chapter three. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? or by believing, that is by faith in what you heard. Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing in what you've heard? See, this church was turning away from the gospel that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the way of the spirit Paul is talking about here. They had turned away from the gospel towards rule following, the way of our own human effort, and they were drifting back to Torah as the basis for salvation and holiness in relationship. And Paul's pretty clear, right? It's like, this is foolishness. Guys, don't do that. Why would you go back? Why would you add to the gospel? The grace of the gospel of Jesus is sufficient and it's complete for bringing us into fully reconciled relationship with God. It it includes God's work of sanctifying us of cleaning us up, of bringing our attitudes, our behaviors and decisions in line with Jesus' kingdom. But it all happens in relationship with the living God, not, not by these rules. It's as we walk with Jesus that he sanctifies us by his spirit. So again, we can ask ourselves, are there ways I've replaced relationship with rule following? And this is so easy to do. It's as easy as having a preference about a non-central aspect of the faith, and then all of a sudden that preference gets made into a law in your mind, and you start to like sort people out via that preference, right? That person's in, that person's out. That person's filled with the Spirit because they do this, that person's not, right? This is easy to do, and Jesus is calling us away from that back to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Lastly, I want us to consider our view of the church. I had lunch with someone on Friday and and he brought up two different images of the church that I've been mulling over in my mind and I think they're really helpful. And the question is this, how do we view the church? Do we view the church as a museum of the saints? A museum of the saints where the mission of a museum, right, is to keep everything right and in its place. And there's lots of rules to the end that that would happen. Lots of red tape and there's guards there saying, shh, don't do this, don't do that, don't get near that, don't touch that. (laughs) And the end game of the museum is to guard everything so that it stays perfectly neat and preserved, right? 
Is that what the church is supposed to be? Or do we see the church as a hospital for the wounded? Where the mission of the hospital is just to welcome people who have need to to come in our doors, to come into the midst of our fellowship and find health and healing. The church is here to announce the inbreaking reign of the kingdom of God to welcome the sick and the spiritually lost of our city. And then we welcome them, and as we welcome people, we welcome the mess, right? We welcome the brokenness, and, and what we long for is to pe- for people to gather around Jesus, that they would come and meet with the great physician. And he's going to start putting their lives back together, just like he's putting each one of our lives back together. That's what we're called to be, a safe and hospitable body of people where people can come to Jesus. So I just want to say some specific words. Young parents who show up here with nursing babies and unkempt hair, and you show up probably with your children's bodily fluids on your person somewhere. Welcome to church. To those who are living through the wreckage of your family falling apart, and you're wondering, how on earth am I going to pick up the pieces? Welcome to church. To those who are coming to the realization that you are attracted to people of the same sex, and you're wondering how on earth following Jesus is going to intersect with that issue in your life. Welcome to church. To those uh, who can only come out once in a while because of mobility issues and failing health, welcome to church. To those who have been divorced and who have been looked down upon as second class because of it, welcome to church. Fill in the blank, right? To those who are less than perfect and uniquely flawed, we can all just slip our name right in there. Welcome to church. Amen? Jesus is Lord of this place. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And what we're seeing in Luke and what we're going to continue to see in Luke is that he is concerned for the sick and for the broken for the outcast and the marginalized. In his own words, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Matthew's gospel, a version of this story, Jesus makes it even more clear. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what this means for us, what this means for you, whether you've been in church for 40 years or whether you've been in church for four hours, what this means for us is that God is primarily the kind one, not the demanding one. May we respond to his kindness with repentance and trust. Would we resist the temptation to exchange relationship for rule-keeping? And would we be set free to discover how the presence of Jesus in our lives 
truly changes everything. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the worship team to come as they lead us in some songs of worship to close our service.